so we're going to be back in Revelation. Uh, when were we, was that like the fall, September, October, November? I don't even remember. So we, accordingly, we will be doing a little review this morning for those who weren't a part of that or for those like me who have forgotten. Uh, but to start, I'll tell a story that I read this week. Uh, some time ago, a man on a road trip with his family recounted that they saw a sign as they were driving, then the sign called upon people to acknowledge God. The sign said, go and worship God in the church of your own choice. A child in the back said, Daddy, what does worship mean? And the father said, it means to go to church and listen to the preacher preach. The writer said, could a more horrible definition of worship be uttered? And probably, well, there probably could be one, but that's pretty bad. Yeah, worship entails a whole lot more than going to church and hearing the preacher preach. Uh, three or four hundred years ago, that word worship, it actually got shortened. Uh, it was worship, worship. And I think that is appropriate uh, as to what we're going to see today in Revelation 4, which is essentially a worship service. Uh, we are going to get John's recounting of what he saw, uh, and actually we're going to be seeing that the next couple of weeks as we look at Revelation 4 and chapter 5. Uh, and specifically in Revelation 4, we see the worship of the Father, God the Father on his throne in heaven. William Temple was the renowned Archbishop of Canterbury. Has anybody ever heard of William Temple? A few people. Yes, I had not. Um, he, what was that? Temple, yeah, I've heard of Temple too. I'm just kidding. No, the Archbishop of Canterbury, yes. Uh, he defined worship as the quickening of the conscience by the holiness of God, feeding the mind with the truth of God, purging the imagination by the beauty of God, opening the heart to the love of God, and devoting the will to the purpose of God. Many of those elements that Temple talked about there in that definition, we are going to see very specifically in Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, we get a picture of the worship of God the Father in heaven. Worship for him for his glory, worship for his holiness, and worship him because of his worthiness. So we see that glory, worship for his holiness, and worship for his worthiness. But before we go there, uh, some background or some recap of what we covered back in the fall. So does anybody remember what the word, the actually uh, revelation, the Greek word me meant, what it was? Remember it? apocalypsis? The Greek was apocalypsis. And when we talk about the apocalypse, when we think about the apocalypse, you know, we think of fire and brimstone. We think of, you know, tsunamis and earthquakes and all these great happenings. But very simply, an apocalypse is an unveiling, an uncovering. And that is what the book of Revelation is. It is the uncovering of Jesus Christ and of the future and of his judgment of the world, his returning to earth, and his setting up and establishing his kingdom forever. That is what we see in Revelation. That has been uncovered. So 
uh, as we think about Revelation and as we approach it, we talked way back when, uh, there are several methods or means of interpreting Revelation. And we went through some of the ones that are not the most appropriate way, and I'll today, for the purpose of time, I'll just simply discuss the method that we believe and teach is the appropriate means to interpreting Revelation, and that is the futuristic or the literal approach. So why a literal approach to the book of Revelation? Uh, because we approach the entire Bible with a viewpoint that it should be taken literally, uh, unless its context indicates otherwise. Why would we approach Revelation any differently? If the literal approach is the best way to approach the Bible as a whole, why would you approach the book of Revelation any differently, right? So that is why we hold to that literal view. Chapter 4 through the end of the book, where we start today, what, what we're going to be talking about is the future. It is prophecy. It is not allegorical, um, although there is a, a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. Uh, but just because something is symbolic doesn't mean that it's not literal. Uh, for instance, the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was a real thing. The temple and, and the appointments in the temple were real things, but they were are also pictures of Christ and atonement in Christ. Uh, and so that is one example. So we take the things that we read in Revelation literally, unless the context dictates otherwise. And there is symbolism woven in with all this proper prophecy, easy for me to say. So the literal interpretation leads to many conclusions, and I'll hit a couple of them. First of all, God deals separately with the nation of Israel and with the church. The promises in the Old Testament that God made to the nation of Israel uh, were, are intended to, to be fulfilled and are, and are yet to be fulfilled. And we're going to see that in the study of Revelation. Um, the literal interpretation also supports a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, very little bit more, here in a second. When we covered it in the introduction, we talked about who wrote Revelation. And there is no legitimate argument that anyone other than the Apostle John was the author of Revelation. In chapter 1, in verses 1, in verse 4, and in verse 9, all identify John as the author. Uh, so that is the Apostle John. He wrote it while he was exiled on the island of Patmos, which is off the Greek coast. Uh, and Patmos was a prison colony. And John was sent there by the Roman Emperor Domitian. And as legend has it, we don't know that this is true or not, but as legend has it, he was sent there because... They had tried to execute him multiple times and were unsuccessful, including trying to boil him in oil. Uh, the emperor couldn't kill him, so he sent him to Patmos. Um, that, again, that may or may not be true. That's uh, extra-biblical history. He wrote it during uh, the years 94 to 96 AD. Um, he had been exiled for his profession of faith in Christ and for his teaching for Christ. He was being persecuted. So that gets us to chapters 1 through 3, which we covered back in the fall. In chapter 1, we see what, if it's not the greatest, one of the greatest uh, descriptions and depictions of Jesus Christ in the Scripture. Chapter 1 answers the question, who is Jesus Christ? 
and we saw that Jesus is God. He is part of the Holy Trinity. We saw that Jesus is our Savior, that He is eternal, that He is our identity, that He is the head of the church, that He is the righteous judge, the Son of Man, and that Christ is our comfort. And we saw all of that in chapter 1. The recurring theme from chapters 2 and 3 was repentance. And chapters 2 and 3, if you're familiar with it, know you know that those are messages from Christ to seven churches that were in existence in the first century there in Asia Minor. And these messages were sent to these churches as they would have been on a mail route. Um, and first with Ephesus and then ending up with the seventh uh, in Laodicea. And again, the, the recurring theme was repentance. That Greek word for repentance that the Bible uses is metanoeo. And it is, it carries with it the essence of a change of mind. Repentance, the root of repentance is in the mind, in our thinking. Uh, more specifically, it's changing our mind from thinking about something wrongly to thinking about it biblically. Um, but that definition doesn't carry the full weight of repentance because true biblical repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. A change of mind that leads into change of behavior. Uh, we don't conjure up repentance ourselves. It is a gift of God. Second Timothy 2.25 says that God uh, and Timothy, as, as Paul was writing, uh, that we had to gently instruct people who oppose us. And he says that so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So we don't conjure up repentance apart from God's work in us. And so that change of mind leading to a change in behavior, um, essentially we change our minds to agree with God. We are thinking that something is okay, I justify my sin in some way, and repenting is I stop seeing that as okay, I agree with God that it's sinful, and I change my behavior to live in obedience to God. That's what repentance looks like. Jesus tells five of these seven churches that they need to repent, to repent. And he actually tells a sixth one, uh, the church at Smyrna, that they need to stop fearing. There was only one church where Jesus didn't have correction for. Anybody remember who that church was? Philadelphia. Very good. I heard it whispered. The church at Philadelphia, Christ only had encouragement for. Um, and in those messages to these seven churches, we see the following things. We saw that the church of Ephesus abandoned their love for Christ and they needed to recapture their love for Christ that they had at first. The church at Smyrna was being persecuted. Jesus didn't tell them to repent, but he told them they needed to stop fearing and to endure patiently what was coming to them. The church at Philadelphia it needed, excuse me, the church at Pergamum needed to stop tolerating false teachers in the church. And the church at Thyatira needed to stop tolerating sin in the church. The church at Sardis thought that they were alive and that they were flourishing, but they were dead, and they didn't know it. Um, they needed to repent and wake up. As I mentioned, the church at Philadelphia was only commended. They were commended for standing up for Jesus in the face of persecution, and Jesus told them that they would be rewarded at the proper time. And finally, the church at Laodicea was lukewarm, and tepid. 
They disgusted Jesus. He wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. They needed to repent of their self-reliance and trust and seek Christ. So it's not discussed or revealed in exact terms in the book of Revelation. Prior to the onset of the tribulation, which we're going to see in chapter 6, but after these messages, the church is raptured. The rapture of the church takes place where Jesus meets them, meets us in the air, and takes us to heaven. We can find support for that viewpoint in 2 Thessalonians, in 1 Corinthians 15, and in Revelation 3. Um, so at some point between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, the church has been raptured, but we don't see that. So why do we believe that? And without getting into it, we could do a whole lesson or even a whole series on the tribulation and the rapture, or excuse me, on the rapture. Um, what we're going to see coming up in Revelation in chapter 6 through 19 in great detail is the wrath of God being poured out on sinful mankind, on a sinful world. The wrath of God, okay? So think about that. God is pouring out his wrath on sin in chapter 6 through 9. Because Christ bore the wrath of God for sinners, right? God put the punishment on Christ that those who have repented and believed were due. He put that on Christ. Isaiah 5, 53 5 says it perfectly. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. For us to say that a believer needed to endure the wrath of God would be saying essentially that Christ's death on the cross wasn't enough, that we needed to endure further wrath. We don't believe that. Christ's death and the, the wrath of God that he bore for us was enough. There is no need for a believer to endure God's wrath again. Christ has endured it for us. That is the main reason, and one of the best reasons that makes sense to me, supporting a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The church will not have to endure the tribulation. The church is going to be taken up in the air, as the Scripture teaches. So all of that brings us to today in chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, you're going to need your Bibles today. Um, open them up to Revelation 4, and I will read in Revelation 4. And I have the English Standard Version. So after this, after these messages to the seven churches, that's where we are. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Your, your translation may say sardius. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four elders, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders. Excuse me, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, 
which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 1 has one focus. You probably saw it repeated multiple times. What did, Was there a word that you saw that, that caught your attention? Chapter 4. Did I say chapter 1? Chapter 4. Go with what I'm thinking, not with what I say, okay? Throne. Throne. We saw the word throne mentioned in reference to the throne of God 11 times. If you count the, the thrones that the elders are sitting on, the King James translates that chair, uh, but it's actually the same word. It's 14 times, but 11 times this, the, the throne of God is, is mentioned. Uh, we are given John's inspired account of what he saw when he was ushered into heaven. And we see the worship of the Father taking place. And this gives us an understanding of why we worship, of who we worship. And again, that we worship God because of his glory, because of his holiness, and because of his worthiness. But before we get to this worship and those, those three things that we see, I think it's important for us to kind of identify the scene and identify the characters that John observed. Because uh, if you're like me, you had a lot of questions. That may or may not be an accurate depiction. Um, it's not a true photograph that was taken by John, uh, but I thought it was, uh, but it was uh, at least in my mind, a fairly accurate, you know, it's kind of, what does it really look like? What is this describing? It was helpful for me. Um, starting with, as I mentioned, verse 1 starts with, after this, after Christ gave his messages to the seven churches, uh, that is where we are. So again, we're, we're dealing with a chronology here. This is the next step in the chronology. And in chapter uh, 1, verse 19, it gives us a basic outline of the entire book of Revelation. And John writes, he says, I want you to write down the things that are, or excuse me, the things that you have seen, which was the revelation of Christ that John saw, that description that we saw in chapter 1. The things that are, which were the state and the messages to these seven churches, and the things that are yet to come. That is from chapter 4 through the end of the book. That's where we are today. We're in part three of the outline, the things that are yet to come. 
One scholar talked about uh, Revelation as prophecy, uh, that the events to be predicted are not just probable, they are fixed and certain because they are the outworking of God's will. So all these things that we're going to be talking about as we study Revelation from this point forward are fixed and certain. They have not yet happened, but they are going to happen. You know, John saw a door open in heaven, and a couple of inferences there that strike me as important. Um, first of all, the door was opened. John couldn't go up and open the door himself. None of us could go up and open the door himself. That had, implies an invitation there. What else does? What has a door? Something imaginative. A, a, a room, a building, a house, yeah, a real fixed space. You know, things that have doors ha are real fixed spaces. And the throne room of God, heaven, is a real fixed space. We're going to look at that a little bit more um, here in a few minutes. You know, it said that John heard the voice that he heard uh, at first, and that was the voice of Christ. This is Christ that is speaking to him. Um, in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, uh, the voice that was like a trumpet signifying authority was the verse of Christ. So that is God, or Christ, speaking to John, saying, come up here. And when he gets up there and he enters the door, what does he see? He sees the throne room of God, a real fixed space. It is a place that borders on being beyond description even though John gives us a description of what he saw. Um, notice that seven times in his description of what he saw, John says, like. I saw something like. This was like. And that's an indication that he is doing his best to communicate in human terms what his eyes could barely describe. Um, he also uses the phrase, uh, something that had the appearance of, depending upon your translation. So, what John is telling us is, is this is as good as I can do to put it in terms that you can understand exactly what I'm seeing when I talk about seeing the throne room of God. Um, you know, we see that there is a throne, a throne standing, and that there is one seated on the throne. And that one is the Almighty God, Jehovah, the Father. He is seated there. And the, scrap, the, the chapter goes on in great detail. If you noticed the, the phrase used, it describes who is on the throne and the things that John observed that were around the throne, above the throne, out from the throne, before the throne. You know, everything is drawing our attention to the one seated on the throne. That's John's point, the focus and the worship of God the Father, and that is where our attention and our focus should be as we go there. So as we consider these things, God on the throne, 24 elders, four living creatures, you know, how can we know that this is a real fixed space? That this isn't some wild, you know, allegorical, you know, how can we take heart and, and have confirmation that this is real? And I think this is where the rest of the Bible is extraordinarily helpful to us, which is why I said you're going to need your Bibles today. And fortunately, by providence, we're in this room with a whiteboard, which we didn't have in the chapel. So we're going to kind of do a little Bible drill, and we're going back to the Old Testament. So flip over to 
Isaiah 6 first. Isaiah 6. Someone please read for us Isaiah 6, the first three verses. So you may, and one of the things I probably should have prefaced this with is we're looking at these Old Testament passages and the similarities with what John saw and what he described in Revelation 4. Did you see anything in Isaiah 6 and those first three verses in any way similar to what John observed in Revelation 4? What were they? There's a throne. Say that again. So what had six wings? Seraphim. So he saw seraphim, and we need to talk about that for a second. So, it's interesting, seraphim, which is the plural of seraph, is by many considered to be a class of angels. That we think of seraphim, cherubim, as two main classes of angels. However, something that I learned in preparing for this, this is the only place in Scripture where a seraph or a seraphim is speaking of an angel. And the word seraph or seraphim simply means fiery one or fiery ones. So, can't be dogmatic about it, but I'm leaning towards the belief that this seraphim that Isaiah saw wasn't a class of angels. Um, it is simply his description of the angels that he saw, fiery ones. And I think that's going to be important as we look at these other Old Testament passages. So, um, he sees a throne, he sees seraphim, he sees these fiery ones with six wings. What else did Isaiah see and record there, similar to what we saw in, in Revelation 4? They're saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Exactly. Anything else? I didn't pick up anything else, but you might. So moving from there, let's go to Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel 1. I told you it's going to be a little Bible drill. And there's quite a chunk here, and I'm, so I'll just read. In Ezekiel 1, I'm going to start in verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness all around it, and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had human hands, and the four had faces in their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right. The four had the face of an ox on the left. The four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. And he goes on and describes in detail their, their movement. He talks about they had the appearance of torches moving to and fro. 
and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. So skipping forward a little bit, he says, As for the appearance of the wheels in verse 16 and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. And when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. I'll skip forward a little bit to verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures... There was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is, in the, that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. There's a lot there. But what did Ezekiel see? That was similar to what John saw, similar or identical to what John saw in Revelation 4. Four, yep. A rainbow. What the? What about? What was similar about the four creatures? The four faces, right? Now, interesting that. The four creatures that John saw each had a different face. The four creatures that Ezekiel saw, all four had on each side all four faces. Okay? Any other similarities that we saw? Saw the throne. Right? There was a crystal expanse, right? Lightning, lots of fire, roaring sound for the sake of time. Lots of similarities in what they saw, right? Between what Isaiah saw, between what Ezekiel saw, between what John saw. Flip over to Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel gives us a little more detail in another vision. This time Ezekiel is seeing into the temple um, just prior to the glory of the temp- Lord leaving the temple. Ezekiel 10.1, he says, I looked and behold on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. So he's identifying these four living beings as cherubim, angels. There appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. And skip forward to verse uh, 12 in chapter 10. Speaking of 
uh, the, the four living creatures, their whole body, their rims and their spokes, their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around. That was a detail we missed from in chapter 1, right? Full of eyes all around, the wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the, whirl, the whirling wheels. And everyone had four faces. The first was the face of the cherub. The second was the face of a human face. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. So any, any other detail there that we saw in Ezekiel chapter 10 in that vision? So we see the four faces. He identifies them as cherubim, correct? Yes. Anything else? Those few verses in Ezekiel 10. The throne. There was a sapphire, right? We saw that that idea that they they were full of eyes, full of eyes. Well, as if that's not enough, let's keep going. What else does the Bible have to say about that? Um, let's turn to Daniel, very briefly. Someone read for us Daniel chapter seven, verses nine through eleven. So what similarities did we see? What did Daniel see? Wings? Flames. Coming out of the throne, right? Anything else? And we'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. More about uh, what we'll see in Revelation 5 in these thousands and thousands around the throne. Yeah. So quickly, one last look, going all the way back to Exodus. Exodus in chapter 24. So Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, and the 70 elders of Israel are going up to the mountain. Uh, and, and so in Exodus 24, 9, it says, They went up, and then verse 10, And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So just very simply there, in Exodus 24, we saw that sea, that pavement, as it were, the sapphire expanse. So, if we talk about Revelation 4 that was written in 94 to 96 AD, and then Isaiah 6 was written in the 500s, Ezekiel also in the 500s, uh, excuse me, Isaiah would have been in the 700s, Ezekiel in the 500s BC, Daniel in the 500s BC, Exodus Somewhere, that account would have been around 1500 B.C. So we're talking about a period of 1600 years. I unplugged the screen, sorry. Thank you. 1600 years 
between what Moses and Aaron saw and what John saw. And yet, they're seeing the same thing, in essence. And it's like, well, it wasn't exactly the same thing. Why could the, the, the fact that their accounts differ a little bit be more confirmation that they were looking at the same thing, maybe more so than if they had said the, all said the same identical thing? Come on. Yeah, if they were giving the same exact account, I mean exact account, it would be very easy to say, well, one was just copying from another one. Somebody wrote it down 1,500 years ago, then the guy that came 700 years ago, he was just copying what he read, and then 200 years later, he's just copying. No. In fact, investigators, you know, detectives will tell you, if you have two people that you're interviewing that are suspected of conspiring in a crime, if they give you the same exact story about their alibi, about something that was going, going on, uh, then you should very much question what they're telling you. Because they've rehearsed it. They've talked about it. People will naturally, because of their own biases, their own how they see things, give somewhat different accounts of the same exact events. That's the nature of eyewitness testimony. Even though these six, and counting John's seven visions, are slightly different, and some of them somewhat, you might even say significantly different when you talk about the four faces, um, they saw the same thing. They all saw the throne room of God. They all saw these living beings around him, worshiping him. You know, Isaiah and John both see the holy, holy, holy. They heard them saying the same things. This is telling us, and it's affirming, that this throne room is a real, actual, existing place. It's not something metaphorical. It is real. It is real. And, uh-oh, there's, no, there's a clock. A bad place for a clock. It should be right there. Um, it is real. And that is comfort for us. Uh, as we compare those accounts, um, they all saw the real throne room of God the Father. Um, J. Vernon McGee, a uh, noted Bible teacher, commentator, pastor, says the throne is God's headquarters. From his throne, that is where he is ruling the world, where he has always ruled the world. Um, he is there, he is seated, he is ruling, he is sovereign. And this is the God that we worship. This is the God that we worship. That is what John saw. So what else does he see? Some interesting things that we've already talked a little bit about. He sees these 24 elders, and he sees these four living beings. So who are these 24 elders? Who are they? Who do you think they are? Anybody that's maybe studied this or been able to form an opinion? Or who just, or, or even... You've never thought about it, but you have a knee-jerk response. Who, who might these 24 elders be? Who might they represent? Nobody's going to go out on a limb. That's okay. Okay, so 12 apostles, 
12 patriarchs, 12, you know, the 12 sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel. That is most definitely one of the viewpoints. You, you know, as we talked about back in the fall studying, you will be surprised to know that opinions vary on who these 24 elders are, who they represent. That 12 and 12 idea is, is a common one, um, and that they represent the, the patriarchs, Israel and the church. Okay? Uh, there's an issue with that viewpoint. Anyone have a thought as to what that issue might be? No? Okay, um, hadn't thought of it in those terms. Um, that the issue is the representation of Israel at this point in time in heaven. This is heaven. Israel has not yet been redeemed. We're not going to see that until chapter 7 with the redemption of the 12,000 from each and every tribe, the 144,000. So it would seemingly be, if we're holding to a literal viewpoint, it's a little too early for the nation of Israel to be represented in heaven. That's one of the main reasons why I don't think that it's the 12 and 12. Um, and again, we can't be dogmatic about who these guys are because no one knows with 100% certainty. Um, the time wouldn't be right for Israel to be there. Some say that these 24, that these elders are a special class of angels. They're not cherubim. It is another class of angels that is worshiping God in heaven. Uh, there's some problems with this viewpoint, and some of the defenses against that are that, first of all, the word used here for elders is presbyteroi. It's the use the word and the term in, in the Greek uh, throughout the New Testament. It's never used of angels in the New Testament. We also never see angels, as we're going to see later in the chapter, with crowns in the New Testament. Um, it also talks about how uh, these were clothed in white. And that is typically something we see more of saints described in the New Testament than we do of angels. Um, so those are some of the defenses uh, against this being a special class of angels. However, those who hold to the idea that these are a special class of angels uh, point to the fact that arguments from silence are not concrete. And that that's all this is, is just because it doesn't say presbyteroi to refer to angels elsewhere doesn't mean that it's not possible. Just because we never see angels with crowns in Scripture doesn't mean it's not possible. But again, I lean towards the idea that these 24 elders represent the redeemed church, the church that has been raptured at this point in time. Uh, that's who these 24 are. What about the idea of 24? Can anybody think of anything back in the Old Testament where the number of 24 had significance? It's kind of obscure. You have to really be on, on your uh, P's and Q's to pick it up. I wouldn't have picked it up absent my study this week. The Levitical priesthood, there were 24 courses or 24 duties of the priests that were, would, would take place regularly. And essentially, the, the, our commentators most consider that number 24 representative of completion. Um, so these 24 elders, if you take uh, some of the things that I've been talking about, uh, are a representation, a complete representation of the church, of the redeemed church. Okay, 
Um, these uh, are the 24 elders. So next we have these four living creatures. Who are they? I think we can be confident to say that they are cherubim. They are angels. Okay. Uh, where else in the Bible did we, you know, not speaking specifically of the passages we talked about earlier, but somewhere else uh, that we see cherubim in the Scripture? The Garden of Eden. What were they doing in the Garden? Guarding the East Gate, right? So if you remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, after the curse, God banishes them from the Garden of Eden, and He sets up cherubim with flaming swords. Why did He want to guard the gate? Bring it on home, Andrew. Yeah, he, to keep them from coming back in the garden, eating from the tree of life, and living in their sinful state forever. So cherubim were guarding the, the Garden of Eden. Um, cherubim are a special class of angels. They are selected by God, uh, typically to administer judgment. And again, not surprisingly, there are varying viewpoints about these four living creatures, about their faces, and what they represent. And I will just tell you, going back to what we saw here, my opinion, I'll get away from the podium, so um, this is an opinion. Uh, this could be error. I hope it's not heresy, as we just heard. But my opinion is Ezekiel and John saw the exact same creatures. It was simply from John's perspective, he didn't see the other three sides of their faces. Does that make sense? I think the beings that John saw were the same beings that Ezekiel saw. He just saw them from a different perspective. Ezekiel, they were moving all around, right? Ezekiel noted constant motion. You know, John didn't tell us about motion. So for whatever reason, it's my, my opinion that these are the same exact creatures that they saw. Um, but what about these faces? What could they represent? You know, some commentators say that four and these living beings uh, are representative of the completion of God's creation. You know, that we see four seasons, we see four directions, the four uh, natures of the wind, north, south, east, and west. Um, and we're going to actually see later on in the chapter God being worshipped for His creation. Um, that's one of the reasons uh, that they declare uh, that they are worshipping. And so out of that, uh, the lion and as part of God's creation, representative of wild animals. And that the ox, and you may, depending upon your translation, that word for ox may be calf or it could be bull. In the Greek, in the Hebrew, it's the same word. Um, so it's not you know, some kind of different or contradiction. Um, so ox, calf, bull, uh, representing domesticated animals. Obviously, mankind is pretty self-explanatory. Um, and then the eagles is representative of birds. And again, a picture of the totality of creation. Getting a little more symbolic um, and thinking in terms of the lion, ox, man, and eagle. Uh, lion, what, what do we think of when we think of a lion sometimes just in general terms? Ferocity, power, sure. Kingly majesty, right? Um, in terms of, of the lion. Um, ox being representative of labor, service, uh, mankind, reason, and depending upon the man, intelligence. Um, that's a joke. 
Um, and certainly the eagle as swiftness or maybe supremacy. Those are some of the, the symbolism uh, that are, that's offered by varying commentators. Um, and we don't know. Um, some like to point them as representative of the four Gospels. Not shockingly, they can't agree on which face represents which Gospel. Uh, you see many different uh, combinations and permutations there. Um, and also that, you know, that they are somehow representative of Christ, that the ox is Christ as sacrifice, uh, the lion, Christ as king, uh, the eagle, Christ in heaven, uh, man, Christ as man. You know, possible, that, that could be what they represent. Um, what is, is something that's interesting is if you go back to the nation of Israel and when they would, as a nation, march, they marched under four banners. And one tribe would sort of take the lead on, on the, the north end, east, west, and south. And you would be shocked to know that those four banners depicted a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Uh, Dan uh, depicted the eagle, Ephraim, the ox, Reuben, the man, and who is the lion? Judah, the tribe of Judah. Um, these tribes and banners surrounded the nation, surrounded the tabernacle, and they are representative of God's protective care. God's protective care. Um, you know, I think all of those things are possible. And, you know, it, it may, certainly makes sense that there's a connection between creation and what these four beings represent because they're going to specifically worship God uh, for creation. And again, we cannot be dogmatic about who these 24 elders are, um, what these four living creatures represent. Um, but what we can be dogmatic about is what we see them doing. What we see them doing. And we very clearly see the 24 elders and the four living creatures worshiping God. Worshiping God for His uh, glory, for His holiness, and for His worthiness. We're not going to get through all this, but that's okay. So first, they worship God for His glory. For His glory. John gives us a picture of God the Father on the throne in all of His glory and splendor. You know, it is difficult for us to imagine because think about this. None of us have ever looked at something perfect perfectly. It's impossible. First of all, because we live in a cursed world. We are cursed creatures looking out at a cursed world. You know, our eyes don't see 100% perfectly. The things that we're looking at are not 100% perfect. So we have no frame of reference for seeing something in 100% purity with 100% purity. But that's what John is seeing. And that's what's being described. The things that we see are cursed by sin. Our eyes are cursed by sin. All creation is cursed by sin. But John is getting a perfect and inspired view of an unstained, uncursed, perfect environment. And the focal point of this environment is a perfect and holy God 
seated on the throne in His glory. So how is God's glory displayed in what John saw? You know, it said that the Father's appearance was jasper and sardius, or jasper and carnelian, depending upon your translation. Jasper is essentially a diamond. It is a diamond-like appearance. Brilliance. Um, God's glory as a, as a diamond represents His holiness and His purity. You know, we think, you know, and jewelers think that they have seen pure diamonds, you know, and they classify diamonds. I don't even know. Is anybody a jeweler? I'm not. But there are multiple classifications of diamonds and their purity. But they have never seen a diamond like what John has seen. You know, again, like a diamond, because that's the best he can do to describe it. A sardius or carnelian is ruby red. It is ruby red. What might the red be representative of? Blood, and, and more specifically, the blood and, and judgment, uh, the wrath of God, um, and the result of the wrath of God. His wrath that He will pour out on sinful mankind. You know, the jasper and the carnelian or the, or the sardius, they were the first and the last stones on the high priest's breastplate. They were the first and last stones there, and that, that takes our mind back there. Um, John MacArthur described this view of God, and I'm not even sure if this is a word, but splendorous magnificence. Splendorous magnificence. God on His throne, His glory. You know, he is majestic beyond belief and description. John's given his best shot. You know, it said, and we saw this in multiple places uh, in the Old Testament, that around the throne was a rainbow. John described it a rainbow like an emerald. And what color is an emerald? Green. Um, so we can think of that as a multicolored rainbow that's predominantly green. I think that's the best way to describe it. I didn't see it, so um, take that for what it's worth. Uh, many commentators believe that green represents God's grace and mercy. Um, and when you think about a rainbow in Scripture, here's a softball. What do you think of? The flood, Noah. The Noahic covenant, right? That God's promise that He would not destroy mankind by flood again. And, you know, I think this is a reminder, uh, certainly many believe that this is a reminder of that God is a covenant-keeping God. His promises are true. We can trust His promises. And, uh, again, uh, His faithfulness, His covenant faithfulness. Um, commentator Robert Thomas says, The rainbow is a reminder that God's mercy is as great as His majesty. There will be no triumph of God's sovereignty at the expense of His mercy. God doesn't set aside His mercy to do anything. He can't. Okay, and that is a picture of, that we see here of this rainbow. We see lightning and the sound of thunder coming out of the throne. And lightning and thunder can be a picture of the coming judgment of God. Uh, as some uh, scholars said, it is a preview of divine wrath. A preview of divine wrath. They come out of the throne indicating that they are initiated by, they originate with God. 
Okay, the lightning and the thunder are coming from him. Going back uh, to Moses and, and the book of Exodus, as Moses and the people of Israel were preparing to receive the Ten Commandments, you know, God had commanded them to purify themselves for three days, you know, to do all the, the washing and the, and the things that were necessary, and that they were to come before him at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19.16, uh, I'll read, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Sounds familiar, right? That's exactly what John saw and heard. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And then we read in chapter 20 when Moses goes up and receives the Ten Commandments. He comes down. People saw this thunder and lightning. They heard uh, the trumpet blast, and they were deathly afraid. Uh, they would not approach the mountain uh, out of great fear. You know, we can imagine thunder and lightning, right? And we've all, in fact, we just heard some trumpet blasts uh, in the worship service. But we can't, I don't believe, imagine the lightning that, that, the, that Moses, that John saw, the, the sound of the thunder, the sound of the trumpet blast. I think, again, he's giving us an earthly picture of the best he can do to describe it. Because... I mean, some of us may be afraid of lightning and thunder. Is anybody afraid of trumpets? No, that's a joke. I'm, I'm assuming not. Um, but some of us, or maybe we have a pet who's afraid of thunder and lightning, um, but it doesn't cause us to fall down and de be deathly afraid. What they saw caused them to be deathly afraid. Um, it is a picture of the judgment of God. Um, we can't imagine that. We can just... We, we can get a, a slight glimpse, a picture. We also see the Holy Spirit present before the throne. Did you pick that up in Revelation 4? The seven lamps of fire, uh, that which are the seven spirits of God. If you, remember when, if you were here when we studied Revelation 1, when John refers to in Revelation as the seven spirits of God, he is identifying the Holy Spirit. Do you remember why that was so? What we can take of that, what does seven represent in the Scriptures, typically? Perfection. Perfection, right? The perfect Holy Spirit represented there by the seven spirits of God, the seven flames of fire. Um, you know, the, And also uh, in the book of Isaiah, there's identified a sevenfold ministry of the Spirit, uh, which could also be a picture there. Um, the Spirit in harmony with the Father. You know, He is present at the throne uh, with God. You know, we, we see that there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, before the throne. We saw that in several other depictions as well. Not a literal sea, I don't think like a body of water. It's more description of pavement, in, in my mind, for lack of a better word. Um, and again, not shockingly, there are many views about what this sea could represent. Um, some say it's the awesome splendor of God. Um, some say it is representative of the vastness between God and man. 
that vast sea that separates us uh, from his purity. If we remember the lavers in the tabernacle of the temple that were for washing uh, the sea, the brass sea, as they were termed, um, some point back to that as what this represents. Uh, now we're not washed ceremonially. Uh, we're washed, we're sanctified by what? Anybody know? Take a shot. The Holy not the Holy Spirit per se. Somebody? The blood, of the blood of Christ. The Word of God. The Word of God cleanses us. The Word of God cleanses us truth. Um, another view is that it represents the purity and majesty of God's rule and sovereignty. And again, like some of the other things, I think we can take all of that in. We can take all of that in because all of those things are true. Um, as to whether or not they specifically are represented there, we can't know. Um, but, uh, but I think, again, we can't be dogmatic. Regardless if it's one or some combination of these things, the point is it displays God's glory and indescribable beauty, this beautiful crystal sea, the overwhelming glory of God. And when we think about that, as we consider that, our only response should be worship, just like those elders and just like those living creatures. All right, we're going to finish with the glory here. So the sea that John saw, very similar to what Moses saw um, in Exodus 24. You know, and it makes me think of a perfectly blue, cloudless day. Um, it's been a while since we had one of those. We do have them from time to time in Michigan. It's not very much in January, but... Who knows, is the sky blue? Is the sky blue? Yes? It appears blue. It appears blue. The sky is clear. The sky, there, it, it is, why does it appear blue? I didn't know, I had to look it up. See, Henry's much smarter than I am. The way the light reflects and refracts. Uh, sunlight reaches Earth's atmosphere. It's scattered in all directions uh, by gases and particles. Uh, blue light is scattered more than the others because it travels as shorter, smaller waves. There'll be a test on that next week. Um, the sky is actually clear, but it appears blue. It appears blue. I'm thinking that perhaps maybe that's what this, this you know, that this, it just appears. You know, that it, it's, it, that it isn't, you know, maybe that's just, that's kind of where my head went with some of this. You know, this beauty, this brilliance, this splendorously magnificent picture is the essence of God the Father, His glory. He is altogether beautiful, beautiful beyond anything we can imagine. John is giving us his best shot at describing it, the beauty of the glory of God. Uh, unimaginable, you know, the magnificence of His glory is reason to worship Him. We need to worship God, worship God the Father because of His glory. All right, so we are out of time, um, but I am going to ask one question that I think is... So, as we talk about so what... Where's the question? Um, so heaven and the throne room are real physical places. Why does that matter 
what difference should that, can that make in our lives in the few minutes we've got left here? Why does that matter? What difference can it make? What difference should it make? Go for it, Josh. Does it continue to point to physical um, resurrection instead of just spiritual resurrection? It's good. Yeah, there we will have a bodily resurrection um, to a real heaven. It's not some mythical, allegorical, symbolic thing. It's real. Okay. So being citizens of the kingdom, citizens in heaven, um, it's not some abstract concept. It's a real thing. It's a real hope. Other thoughts? Why does that matter? What difference can that make? What about thinking of it in terms of your view of Scripture? Taking all of this into account. Does it help affirm or does it cause more confusion in your trust and belief in the Scriptures as the Word of God? I hope it doesn't cause more confusion. Um, if it does, I'd love to chat and, and talk through it. Um, get a hold of me this week. We'd love to spend time doing that, but hopefully, you know, for seeing these five different, and then counting John, six different accounts of seeing the very same thing um, gives us more confidence of the truth and the veracity of God's Word as opposed to maybe thinking that it's, again, just some make-believe and something conjured up by man. Because again, 1,600 years, and they saw the same thing. What else? Being with God. Solidifies our hope. I hope it does. I hope it does. Questions about anything we talked about today? Talk about the eyes. What are the eyes? Oh, good. Thank you. So the idea that you know the full of eyes is complete awareness. You know, so those cherubim are aware of what's going on. Um, is is one viewpoint. Um, just activity carrying out God's commands. Um, is one thing. Within the wheel, I think is specifically what uh, Ezekiel saw. Um, and so he's describing what looked like wheels that these living beings were moving around with. So, perhaps... That was my question. So, Ezekiel 1, 10, you know, 7 of the passages that describe wheels. What are your interpretations? I don't have a good one. Um, I didn't study the wheels specifically because John didn't mention wheels specifically. 
but in, in what I read, what I read, um, again, I think that the wheels are descriptive of their motion and moving to and fro and, again, activity um, that, uh, that they're engaged in um, and carrying out you know, whatever God has commanded them to do. Um, so they're not fixed, in other words. They're, they're going to and fro. Micah. You said that like, there was like, some point in chapter, Revelation chapter 3 that points creature to the preacher of rapture. Yes. So could you point towards like, a specific verse where it says that? Sure. It was in one of the promises to one of the churches. And let's see. Thank you. So he's speaking again to the church in Philadelphia who, who he has no condemnation for, only encouragement. And he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And many people believe that not just a promise to the church of Philadelphia, but to all believers um, who are alive uh, when he comes again, that he will keep us from the trial that is to come on the whole earth. Because again, he has already poured out his judgment on Christ for us. We don't need to endure judgment again because Christ did it for us. Good question. Any others? All right, well, Lord willing, we'll all be back next week. We'll finish up chapter 4, do our best to get through chapter 5, and it will just be a continuation of a look at the worship of God the Father in heaven. As we get into chapter 5, it will move to a worship of Christ in addition to the worship of the Father. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to get into your word this morning. Lord, for the things that have been discussed, the questions. God, I pray that it will help us as we go about our week, uh, Lord, to have a more solid foundation in the truth of your word, the hope that we have in Christ, our citizenship in heaven, um, and the promise that awaits us, Lord, that not for deliverance in some tangible way on this earth, but Lord, that ultimately, um, our, uh, our fulfillment, uh, our, uh, our needs, our deepest needs uh, will be met uh, in eternity with you. And Lord, that as we see you in your glory and consider your beauty, your holiness, uh, God, that we would worship you. Uh, Lord, keep us, turn our hearts uh, to worship you uh, because of who you are. Uh, you are worthy and we are not. Um, let us be mindful of that. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.